If you would turn with me in your Bibles, we're going to be in 1 Samuel, and we're going to be in chapter 3 this morning. But instead of me reading through the entire chapter and then preaching for the sake of time, I was going to do it anyway, I'm just going to read through it as we go through it, and uh, we'll go from there. And what we're going to see as we study this chapter is, is the significance of God's Word. The significance of God's word withheld and the significance uh, of when God speaks and when God calls. And as we explore this passage, we'll see it through these four, four movements. The rarity of God's word, recognizing God's voice, realizing God's call, and the renewal of God's word. So, picking things up here in verse 1. Now the boy, Samuel, was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the Ark of the Covenant was. So we're picking up where we left off last week, which last week we got a glimpse into the, the wicked actions of Eli's worthless sons, as they're so affectionately called, as they were taking the meat and the fat from that which was to be sacrificed to God and taking it for themselves. They, they, they were sleeping around with the women who were serving at the tent meetings. And it said in chapter 2, Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. They didn't know God, and they could not have cared any less. We see that Eli tried to, to go and talk to them, but it ended up being way too little, way too late. And then an unnamed man... If you remember, Cain, unnamed man of God, comes to Eli, gives him some encouraging news. Some very, very positive and encouraging news that judgment was going to come to his house. And he would have a clear sign of this judgment that both of his sons would die the same day. Very nice. Not pleasant news. Not shocking news, as we saw what was happening in chapter 2, but nonetheless not good news. So we pick up some time, not exactly sure how long, after this prophecy takes place. And as we start chapter 3, we see Samuel is doing what we saw him doing in chapter 2. As Eli's sons are making a mockery of worship, Samuel's in the temple. He's ministering before the Lord. He's growing in stature and favor and also with man. He's ministering in the presence of his mentor, Eli. But we're told a key fact in this introductory verse. It says that though the word of the Lord was rare in those days, there was no frequent vision. Why would that even be significant? The word of God should have been the lifeblood of Israel. We're not talking the, the, the written law that they, that they would have had, um, which they still didn't have nearly as much written word, if even a fraction of what we have. 
But, but what was rare was his spoken word to them, his revealing of himself. His word is what gave Israel direction, it is what gave them insight to who God was and what he was doing. It was vital to life. Without the word of God, they were spiritually lost and dying. Israel is told in Deuteronomy 8.3, Man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. How were they to live if they didn't have the word of God? And this is no frivolous, this is no frivolous move, uh, move by God. It's actually a pretty big deal. The absence of God's word, the absence essentially of God's presence, was a sign of judgment on Israel. Not ultimate judgment here, but we have an example of how this works in Amos 8. 11 to 12, which is quite some time after this, but just an example of when God pulls his word, it's never a good thing. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea, from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. God's ultimate judgment isn't throwing down fire and shooting lightning bolts down like we think it is. It's the removal of his word. It's the removal of his presence from the people. In this passage, we're not to that point yet that that we saw in, in Amos. But still, we see that the word of the Lord was rare. There was no frequent vision. I actually like how the King, King James Version uh, translates it. They say the word of God was precious in those days. Should always be precious, but to be precious in that sense means so rare that when you do have it, you value it very much. So it wasn't completely absent, but it was rare. And the peace that we see from the Lord last week was they got some, some of the word of the Lord, and Eli certainly didn't think it was that great of news. So why is God keeping his word from the people in this instance? If you remember where the book of Judges left off, the last verse of the book as it closes, which is right before Samuel, says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Judges 21-25. They were going their own way. They were doing what was right in their own eyes. So it's not like at this time the people were like, God, we yearn for you to lead us, guide us. We're lost without you. We want you as our king. Why are you keeping your word from us? No, there wasn't that. It was the opposite. They were going their own way. They were doing what was right in their own eyes. And God was giving them what they wanted. Not what they needed, but what they wanted. And we see this in Eli's sons, don't we? There is, without a doubt, a connection between the rarity of God's word and the failings of the priesthood. Eli's sons running rampant, doing what they want. Eli kind of talking to them, but really showing no authority as the father and the priest. But a time was coming when God would choose his prophet to reveal his word to and to the people. Because in the midst of all that chaos going on at the hands of Eli's sons in the temple, 
we do have Samuel, who's ministering and serving faithfully. Before we get into Samuel and the rest of this chapter, I want us to think a little bit more about this rarity of the Word of God. Because today, I think a rarity of the Word of God isn't something we can really wrap our heads around. Because none of us have been alive old enough, long enough, for the Bible not to be in full print somewhere. Especially these days, it's everywhere. You can get a Bible at the dollar store. Right? I mean, the most valuable and precious thing you can just grab for a dollar seven, dollar eight. Not bad. We have it available to us. If we don't have the written, the printed word, we can download an app and have it. Or, or if we want a, a different translation, you go to BibleGateway.com. You get any translation you want. Good ones, horrible ones, it doesn't matter. They have it. Right? But despite this overabundance of the word surrounding us, it's still so possible for the Word itself to be rare. Not in the same way that we have here, but with the same effect. We're left directionless. We're left without hearing from God. I mean, how often do our Bibles sit in the same place from where we sat it down after Sunday morning, and then we pick it up that Sunday, next Sunday morning and bring it here, untouched, unread, and I say ours because I'm by no means perfect at all in doing this. How often do we start these reading plans? We're like, I'm going to go through a Bible in a year. I'm going to read like three verses every day, or three chapters every day. I'm going to make it through. Three days later, well, I missed a day, so I guess I'm done. We'll try next year. And we just put hearing from God in the back burner. Or we download this new Bible app that we think is awesome, and it's like, well, I don't want this on the first page. Let me go three pages into my phone. We'll put it in a folder, and then, you know, no one goes to the folders on the third page on their phone. And we don't touch it. Are we so different than Israel? Are we not living life by what is right in our own eyes, just in a different culture, in a different way? How are we to live? How are we to to have our being without the truth of Scripture nourishing us? We can be famished from God's Word while reading God's Word. How does that make any sense? It's true. If we're just reading this for information, we're just looking to find information, we're not asking the Spirit to transform us by it, we're just reading it to get it done, check it off the list, are we really hearing God's word? It's rare. It's, it's rare to us. Because we can, we can open it sometimes and we read it, and then like a few moments later we're like, I don't even remember what I just read. Not much of an impact. How do we overcome it? How do we get out of the rut of biblical rarity? We need to ask God to work in us. That the Spirit would shape us and mold us as we look to the Scriptures. We need to humble ourselves as we approach the text. For those who have been Christians for a long time and you've read the Bible front to back, you've made it through the Bible in a year a few times, sometimes we go, oh yeah, this book, I know what it's talking about, I know exactly what it's going to say, so I'm just going to read it real quick, I'm not really going to give it much attention. We think we have all the answers, we got it figured out. Um, and I can attest that that is not always the case. This past October, the pastor elders, we went to this workshop called Simeon Trust 
Um, and it's all about exposition, expositional preaching. And the whole focus of this workshop is, is reading the text and arriving at the main point that the original author intended, which is what we should be doing regularly, uh, and then from there, bridging it to our culture today. But first, we want to know, what's the author saying? I'm like, this is easy. I've, I've preached the King's Chapel alone over 20 times. I'm in the Bible regularly. Uh, this is going to be a piece of cake. So I do my worksheet. I fill it out. I make my Christ connections, as good gospel-centered preachers should. And we get to the workshop, and I present my thing, and I'm like, bing, bang, boom. Who's going to critique this puppy? And someone raises their hand. And it was like, uh, did you... Did you really highlight the main point of the passage? Did you get what, what Paul was actually saying to Timothy in that? And then he proceeded to show me where I did not, and I was humbled. <laughs> and it was okay. It was actually very good. It stressed me out the next day because I had another worksheet. I was like, I have to totally redo this thing and make sure I got it. And I asked Katie. I was freaking out. It was <laughs> but it was good because it kept me in check. I need to approach the scriptures humbly and say, God, speak to me. Don't let me speak to you in this sense. Don't let me speak the meaning into the text. Let me hear what you're saying from it. So that his word might not be rare to me, but that I would regularly be nourished by it. So that's approaching it humbly. Back to Samuel. Let's get back to Samuel here. So verse 2. Here we go. We got a lot of verses to get through, don't we? So verse 2 here gives us some, some time markers in the passage. One, it says that Eli was starting to lose his eyesight. Translation, Eli's getting old. He's not totally blind, but he'd definitely be like legally blind. And we also have some double meaning going on here. So Eli's getting old, he's getting blind. But we see as much as he's physically blind, poor Eli is spiritually blind. Theologian uh, John Woodhouse put it like this. He said, Eli's physical condition was a reflection of the spiritual reality. He could not see the light of day, nor could he see the word of the Lord. His darkness was deep. So Eli's getting old. He's losing his eyesight. Another time mark we have is this lamp in verse 3. The lamp of God had not yet gone out. There would have been a real lamp that was burning outside the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was placed. This lamp was to burn from evening till morning each night. So by it being lit but not quite out means it was still nighttime. We're heading into dawn. We're getting close to that time. So it just gives us a little marker of where we're at here. But there's also this this double meaning. The lamp of Israel's light was dimming but not yet out. God had not fully removed his word from them or his presence from them. It was rare, but there's hope. And that's what leads us here to Samuel. So verse, verses 3, or verse 4 to 9. Then the Lord called to Samuel, and he said, Here I am. And Samuel ran to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. But Eli said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and laid down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. But he said, I did not call you, my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not know yet 
the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he arose, and and Samuel went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went to lay down in his place. If you were to grow up in the culture that we saw Samuel growing up in, in that temple environment, there's no mystery why he would not recognize who was calling his name. He didn't know the voice of God. Verse 7 says he he didn't know God. God had not yet revealed himself to him. He knew about God. He knew how to worship God in the temple and serve God, but he didn't have that relational connection with God. He didn't know him in that sense. It's interesting because we have this phrase in chapter 2 where it says Eli's sons didn't know God. They didn't know God out of their rebellion and their just irreverent ways towards him. Samuel didn't know God and that God had not yet revealed himself to him. But we see him slowly revealing himself to Samuel in this text. And and what I I found interesting here is not as much about Samuel's response, though it's a good response, but God's patient character as he calls Samuel. I mean, three times God is, is calling to Samuel, and three times Samuel runs to Eli. And we don't see God get mad, like, hey, knucklehead, it's God! Don't keep going to Eli! No, he just keeps calling Samuel, and Samuel's like, Eli, until finally Eli gets it. And also think how gentle the voice of God would have been in this moment for Samuel to hear God calling and just think, this is Eli. Normally we see God come onto the presence of people are on the floor, they're like crying, they're like, I'm not worthy, and they're like afraid, right? Even when a messenger of the Lord comes, people are in fear, but not in this case. He's, he's calling Samuel. And is Samuel like afraid at this booming voice he heard? No, he's just, it must be Eli. I'm here. He's not afraid. We don't see that. He hears the voice. And this is what I like about Samuel. He hears the voice. It's, it's dawn. If someone keeps calling my name at dawn and I can't figure out who it is, I'm going to get frustrated. It's too early for that. But he gets up and he's like, here I am, Eli, ready to serve. He's young. Samuel's young. He couldn't be much older than college and could even be younger than that. Samuel doesn't know God's voice. And he patiently, and and God patiently and persistently calls him. And I say praise God that that he doesn't give up on us when we just don't get it. Right? And as this is happening... After the third time, Eli gets up, because he's probably a little cranky too, getting woken up three times by Samuel hearing voices. But then he starts to perceive. He knows that if Samuel's being called, and it's not me doing the calling, then this must be the Lord. Because though he's not a great priest, he's still a priest and would understand God's calling. So he tells him, he said, go back, lay down, go back to sleep somehow. And say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears the next time God calls you. So if I'm Samuel, I don't know about you guys, there's no way I'm falling back to sleep, right? One, I would feel like a dummy 
Because I'm like, three times God called and I didn't get it? Three times? How do I screw that up? I'd be freaking out. Oh, God must be so mad at me. He called my name three times. I didn't get it. I couldn't sleep on Christmas Eve in anticipation of Santa Claus. If I knew God was calling my name three times, I'm not going back to sleep. Right? Samuel goes and he lies down again. And God calls him again. This time it's a little different. Verse 10, And the Lord came and stood, calling as the other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Now what's interesting is he calls him like the other times, but he calls him also differently than the other times. Because it says that, that God came and stood. What that looks like, I don't really know, but it means that God was truly present with Samuel. He wasn't a messenger. God was there. He was standing before him, speaking to young Samuel. And the way in which God calls Samuel, when he says, Samuel, Samuel, he uses the old double name call, which we see in Scripture. God, God calls people by name, a double name as, as emphasis. It shows uh, what we see when he does this is crucial times, important, vital times in their lives. In Genesis 22, as Abraham is grabbing his knife to sacrifice Isaac, God's like, Abraham, Abraham. It's a pretty crucial point in his life. Genesis 46, when God calls Jacob to go down in Egypt, go down to Egypt with his son, he says, Jacob, Jacob. In Exodus 4.13, exceptionally memorable, God speaks to Moses from the burning bush and says, Moses, Moses. And now God is saying, Samuel, Samuel. And though we see this done patiently and gently, it's a very important, weighty calling that he's calling Samuel to. Because in calling Samuel this way, it means that Samuel is about to be used in a big way. And Samuel almost responds how Eli said he should respond. Samuel says, speak, for your servant hears. He left out, Lord, which Eli included in there because he was talking to God. But he leaves it out. We don't know why, but he does. It could have been nerves after all. Speaking to God, kind of a big deal. If anyone's ever met a celebrity and we said something stupid, I have. Imagine, again, talking to God. Significant. So you may not get the script right. Could have had nerves, could have just forgotten. He doesn't say it. God doesn't hold it against him. After all, Samuel didn't truly know God, right? So God speaks to Samuel. Verse 11. The Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. A word of God was rare, and he's finally speaking, Samuel's first interaction, and this is what God speaks to him. Whew. 
That's a first prophecy right there. We don't know if Samuel knew prior what, what Eli had been told by, by the unnamed man of God, but without specific details, you could see how this may not be what you hoped for on your first call from God. And God sets the tone. When he says, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. I don't know what you guys thought, but when I thought, I'm like, if I'm thinking my ears are tingling, something good's happening, something exciting possibly. But in the Hebrew, when he heard that, he would know it means to quiver in fear. So Samuel knows right from the start, this is going to be intense. This is going to be intense. And just think, I didn't hear this God calling me three times before. Now he's saying this. People's ears are tingling. What in the world? So God was going to bring everything that God told Eli previously. He's going to bring it to fruition. Punishment for his house was a sure thing. And not just for, for Hophni and Phinehas, but for Eli. And he was held accountable because it was his job as their father, as the priest, to restrain them from blaspheming God, and he did not. And the judgment is definite and final, and it says it could not be alleviated through any sacrifice or offering. This whole section gives us a glimpse into the vast character of God. We see him gentle and patient with Samuel. But, but, but in his word to Samuel, God demonstrates that he is holy and powerful and just. He will not be made a mockery of, let alone in his own house, by the priest's family. And so he sends down his judgment, a just judgment. And this is the first piece of news that Samuel gets to deliver. No goody. <clears throat> In this moment, Samuel realizes what God is calling him to do. God is calling Samuel to be obedient to what God speaks to him, regardless of the message, regardless of who it's about. Samuel's call was to do as God said. And that's terrifying. But look how Samuel... Look how Samuel handles it. Samuel lay until the morning. He gets up, he opens the doors of the house of the Lord. And it says, And Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. Can you even blame him? Can you imagine having to tell the man who has, who has mentored you and raised you that God is going to bring punishment upon his house? And there's nothing Eli can do. This is coming there's nothing you can do. There's no sacrifice. There's no offering. Nothing. As you're making atonement for other people through these sacrifices, remember there's nothing that can be done for you. That's not fun to share with anyone. It's coming for them. It's not good news. It's not a message we're used to hearing, and it's not a message we want to spread. So naturally, Samuel is scared out of his mind. So he opens the doors to the temple, and here comes Eli. Eli said, Samuel, my son. And he said, and Samuel said, here I am. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you, and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he has told you. So Eli's like, you're going to tell me everything, or you're going to be faced the same doom of whatever you have to say. 
So Samuel's in quite a situation. Afraid out of his mind, but his hand is forced. And when I think of the situation that Samuel's in here, it reminds me of a scene from the show MASH. And we're just going to watch it. We'll alleviate some of the tension, and then we'll bring it right back up. So we got a little video here. If we get some sound for it, before I change it here. We're getting a new commanding officer. Frank's out? How'd he take it? Frank. Are you kidding? My palms are sweating off. I'm afraid to tell him. You better show him the orders, Radar. He'll hit me. Well, where's the mail? I got here 10 minutes ago. Um, I've got it, sir. Well, is there anything for me? Um, well, nothing for Mrs. Burns, sir. I don't care what I didn't get. No, sir. What did I get? Um, here's a card from your veterinarian. Oh, time for your rabies shot. Weisenheimer, shouldn't you be eating or something? We just had a cupcake on the train. I've warned you, Honeycutt. Don't let this man corrupt you. I'm doing my very best, sir. Now, what else is there, Corporal? Um, uh, your service station back home is having a free buffet to open their new Louvre rack, and uh, they're going to be having punch and balloons and Greasy the Clown. <laughs> oh, what's this? It looks official. Um, <clears throat> oh, you're being replaced, sir. What? Smelling salts for two, doctor. I could watch MASH all day, but unfortunately, we have to keep going out, unfortunately. But you know what I mean, in regards to watching MASH. Anyway, I just see such similarities between the two, I couldn't help but show it. What's Eli going to do when Samuel says it? How is he going to react? So Eli, I mean, he forces Samuel's hand pretty good here. As Frank Burns grabbing the orders, he's saying, May God do so, and more also to you if you hide anything that he told you. So in a very demanding, in a very selfish way, Eli actually helps Samuel to be obedient to the call of God. Because what else could Samuel do in that instance, right? Samuel didn't want to tell him the vision, but now he had to. It was like an ancient Hebrew triple dog dare. He kind of just, he had to do it at that point. There's nothing he to do. He's sticking his tongue to the pole. He's letting him know. So what does it say? It says that Samuel told Eli everything. Every last detail. I can just picture Eli's face just kind of dropping, like Frank Byrne's face. The realization that which he was told earlier was now a firm reality. But there's something we can really appreciate in Eli's response. I'll go to the next slide here. And Eli's response to him, he says, uh, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't plead, he doesn't go, no, 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 I'll do anything, I'll do anything, I'll do, uh, whatever, I will do it for God. He doesn't do that. He says, he takes God's decree humbly, and he simply says, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Now I know Eli isn't exactly the role model of the year, but we should desire in our lives to respond life situations more like this. When life takes us off guards, when, when what we wanted to happen doesn't happen, we should say, it is the Lord. Let Him do what seems good to Him. 
Because he's the sovereign one, right? He's our Father in heaven. His ways are not our ways. And he has a plan that we can't always see. And if Eli can say it, when a, a, a prophecy of judgment upon him and his household is told to him with zero chance of atonement, how much more so should we be able to say it? That should give us some perspective. I mean, you have to feel a little bit for Eli. His sons may be complete and utter knuckleheads. But no father wants to watch their sons die. And that was the sign for him. That was the day that he knew this judgment was here, was when his sons died the same day. That's got to be tough. Deserved or not. In the midst of all that, he says, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And in this interaction, Samuel realizes the call on his life. He is to be obedient, to speak what God has called him to speak, no matter how tough, no matter how nerve-wracking. He was being called to be a mouthpiece for God, to be God's prophet in a time when God's word was rare, when God's word was being withheld. God is now going to use Samuel. And today we're being called not in the same way Samuel did in that prophetic sense. We're not being called in that way, but we are still being called to be obedient to the Word of God in the Scriptures, right? And in the Scriptures, we're called to make disciples of people, to speak the truth of the Gospel where we're at, to demonstrate and declare God's good news. At work, at home, at school, at social gatherings, where we... We're not forcing it like jerks, but when we can speak it, we need to speak it, whether it be tough or nerve-wracking, right? We're still called to do that. Are we obedient to that call? Will we be obedient to that call should that situation arise? Are we able to turn conversations to God's glory? We're not called again the same way Samuel is, because we have the scriptures that speak to us. Are we going to be obedient to them? We see that through Samuel, God is speaking to his people. There was a renewal of the word of God throughout Israel. Verse 19. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And the word of Samuel came to all of Israel. Samuel grew from a young boy to a young man. And God was with him. And God was speaking to him. And Samuel was faithful in speaking all that God had told him. He didn't let any of it fall to the ground. None of what God spoke to Samuel would pass away. In Israel, as far north as Dan, which is the furthest north, and Beersheba, which is the furthest south, they would know Samuel was God's prophet. As he spoke, you would hear the words of God. It started in Shiloh, and it spread throughout all of Israel. God's word to the people 
moves from rarity to regularity. Because God chose his prophet. He called his prophet. And we see the effects of that as we continue through this book. But for now, as as we start to wrap things up, I want to fast forward from this. 600, 700 years. We have the word of the Lord given through the prophet Malachi. And following the Lord giving his word through the prophet Malachi, there's silence. For about 400 years after that, God's word was rare again. There were no prophets. There was no inspired words of God given until God's ultimate word steps into creation. Hebrews 1, 1 1-2 says, Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He created the world. John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. For from His fullness we have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the perfect and ultimate Word of God. The Word made flesh dwelling among men. Not speaking through prophets, but He Himself was the ultimate prophet. His own mouthpiece. Come into a world that once again was doing what was right in their own eyes. Living how they were just going to live. It says that he came to his own and his own did not receive him. But he still proclaimed the truth of his kingdom. He preached grace and truth. And that all who call upon his name would be saved. That for those who put their faith and trust in him and Christ alone wouldn't feel the sting of ultimate judgment that Eli and his household felt. Jesus came so we would have a hope, so that we could be grafted into the family of God, that we could be in full communion with the God of the universe. That's really good news, considering the bad news we're coming off of here in Samuel 3. That for those who know Christ, His word wouldn't be rare. It would dwell in us. We have no fear of God's ultimate word being vacant, for we have the gift of His Son. We have the words of eternal life. We have the gift of salvation to us in the Son. And if you've repented of sin and put your faith and trust in Christ, then you have no fear of condemnation and judgment because Jesus stood in our place and took the judgment of God. We have no fear of being cut off as Eli and his household was cut off because Jesus was cut off for us on the cross so we could be grafted in. We have no fear of being forsaken by God and left in hopeless silence because on the cross Jesus was forsaken and left in silence on our behalf. Have you trusted in Christ as your perfect atoning sacrifice for your sins? And if you haven't, make today the day. If God's calling you, don't run. Recognize His voice. 
recognize the grace and the life being offered through Christ Jesus. Repent of sin. Receive His forgiveness and walk in newness of life. That's what this table is all about. That's what the scriptures are all about. Today we take communion. It's the first of the month. And we we do it regularly to remind us of Jesus' broken body for us. And the bread. And the cup shows us the blood that was shed. The new covenant sealed for us. And we partake of it as a family of Christ followers united under the precious sacrifice of Jesus. If you haven't made that decision, if you haven't put your faith and trust in Christ, this table is not for you. But we pray that you would take that step this morning. That you would know God's calling and respond. Here I am. Your servant hears and receive that gift of grace. The band's going to play. Spend some time in quiet repentance before the Lord. Confessing, repenting, and then come celebrate life that's been given in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we just ask that you would soften our hearts this morning. That you would open our ears, that the truth of your gospel and your word would penetrate our hearts and minds. That through your word we would find true life and sustenance. We pray that we would seek your voice through your scriptures. That we would recognize your call on our lives to live for your glory and your glory alone. We ask that you would help us get out of the way in all of it. Help us to put off the sin that is choking us and that the word of Christ would dwell richly within us and nourish us. We pray your spirit would continually be at work in us. Help us to see more fully your beautiful grace. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.